hope you've been enjoying our Room Now live coverage of the ACR 2023 that is in San Diego. And here today, whom I have is Sheila Reyes and Eric Dine. Um, we are going to be talking about lupus, all the things that we've seen about lupus. This is our lupus panel and our lupus discussion. So Sheila and Eric, will you introduce yourself? Go ahead, Sheila. Hi, good morning here from the Philippines. Again, I'm Sheila Reyes reporting virtually. Um, it's uh, It's been a hectic uh, week so far, but lots of learning and um, challenging um, cases that we've seen, especially for lupus. Absolutely, Eric. Greetings from, I'm in Jersey City, New Jersey, and, um, and uh, it's been a great conference. It's just been, been winding down and so just the overload of information it's like learning from the the fire hose it is definitely like the proverbial open your mouth and we're shoving it down so what did you learn and what do you want to share with our audience sure i i can start with um you know one of the plenary sessions from tuesday um which is abstract number two four two seven uh you know, for lupus, there's been um, certainly a lot of information from from Johns Hopkins, um, you know, uh, Dr. Andrea Fava and, and Dr. Petrie, and, and this plenary session from Dr. Alessandra um, Aida Celia. Um, they, you know, they've been looking at quite a lot about various urinary biomarkers and and different markers of lupus nephritis, and in particular, they looked at um, PR three uh, antibodies in lupus nephritis and. Um, they had some very interesting findings that they presented showing that there's more proliferative, uh, the PR3 is more common in proliferative than in membranous disease. It's mostly located in the tubular interstitium. And when they, when they do biopsies, they find that the PR3 cells are higher in the, in the glomeruli at a higher de density with lupus nephritis. And in particular, what's interesting about their findings is that it really correlates with, um, with disease activity. Uh, and not with chronicity. So it's a, it's a good marker potentially of what's going on in the kidneys. Um, but what's particularly interesting, and, and this correlates with, with a bunch of other studies um, that Dr. Fava also presented, that um, the urinary PR3 can also be checked. And Dr. Fava's done a lot of research on these urinary biomarkers, uh, and PR3 is, is certainly one of them. And um, in the plenary, they, they showed evidence that that PR3 marker when you measure it both at six months and at 12 months, it predicts kidney function at three months, at three years. And so looking at it six months, 12 months down the road, it can predict which patients are going to have a decline um, in the renal function. And that's actually was expanded on more in Dr. Fava's session, which was 0850, where he looked at some of these urinary biomarkers and particularly IL-17 is the one, IL-16, sorry, is the one that showed up the most. Um, and so when he looked at it, IL-16 was also predictive, but in particular, when you when you combine IL-16, PR3, some of these other urinary biomarkers, that kind of combination approach is much more predictive of renal loss than, you know, our traditional markers like proteinuria, which have not fared that well. And, and so I think there's a lot of promise here, um, both in understanding the role of PR3 in the kidneys and also maybe using some of these uh, biomarkers for that that liquid biopsy. Yeah, it's extremely important. I know a lot of my patients would prefer to submit a urine sample than to submit their kidneys for the biopsy, for sure. Um, what would be interesting is, you know, like trying to 
predict using this biomarker in patients, you know, who have low-grade proteinuria because per guidelines, you, you shouldn't or you don't have to biopsy until your proteinuria is like more than 300. And, you know, we're missing a lot of cases of um, lupus nephritis, I think, if we're not being a little bit more vigilant. Um, what kind of comments do you think about that, Sheila? Are you submitting your patients to a lot of biopsies or what do you think? Yeah, so um, actually I was about to give a comment on that because of course um, here in this part of the world, um, biopsies are also costly. And again, patients wouldn't really consent to doing a renal biopsy um, left and right because of course um, they wouldn't want any poking of their uh, of a needle being poked into their kidneys or whatnot. So um, if we were to, if there were biomarkers that would be available, that would be um, less expensive um, and it's uh, it's non-invasive, then that would be that would be better than subjecting to renal biopsies. And you're correct because not all, um, not all patients with low-grade proteinuria are, you know, really responding well, or at least if we would have biomarkers, then it, it could also help in, in uh, monitoring treatment response. Right, right. So, um, and Eric, do you know, like, this PR3 marker, um, is this the same PR3 for, like, GPA? Yes. Um, and have they studied this in other diseases with uh, renal manifestations? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, certainly we 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 see in you know involvement with this in vasculitis absolutely affecting the kidneys. You know, and certainly we see this more in that um, you know in the proliferative lupus nephritis. So it's certainly a different phenotype here. But it, you know, we see we know looking back that that patients with lupus can have. PR3 antibodies and AK antibodies. Um, but so, you know, I, I think it's a little bit, I, I don't have a great explanation. There. I think it's definitely something that we need to learn more about exactly that, that role. Um, but I, I think it's a fascinating association that, um, you know, it's not just these serum levels, it's actually looking at the, the biopsies themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sheila, what have you learned during the conference? Okay, so since Eric started with biomarkers, I'm also going to um, ride on what he's um, been uh, start he started with the discussion but this one um, I saw an interesting study um, it's in the poster sessions um, if I'm not mistaken it was presented yesterday um, so it's abstract 2297 about interferon alpha so biomarker um, to predict flares in lupus nephritis it's from um, the group of Dr. Um, Garcia from Toronto. So um, we know that in for for just a brief background, interferon alpha um, gene expression predicts the um, sorry um, higher interferon gene expression is seen in renal tubules of patients with SLE, and um, those with higher expressions uh, would less likely respond to conventional treatment. So the group wanted to determine if the amount of interferon alpha in the serum at the time of a lupus flare would predict response to therapy, um, subsequent lupus nephritis flares and decline in kidney function. So their outcomes were 
um, look into complete uh, response, the number of flares during the time of follow-up, and any decline in GFR. And um, so their results show that serum baseline levels of interferon alpha did predict um, complete response at two years um, from the from the lupus nephritis flare. So patients, meaning that patients with higher baseline levels of interferon had a greater risk of having two or more subsequent flares, especially two years after um, the follow-up. And that every increase in one unit of interferon alpha in, also increased the risk of having two or more flares by around 35%, and the risk of having a decline in kidney function during follow-up. Um, so what would um, what would uh, be good or what would we get from results of this study? Well, again, um, it could be interferon alpha could be a good bio biomarker to predict um, renal flares and, and the future. Yeah, um, I mean, biomarkers are definitely something that we are in need of because, you know, not everybody has a double strand DNA, not everybody, you know, sed rate or CRP goes up during a flare and not everybody has, you know, the traditional markers that we normally check um, in order to predict flares. So I think we need definitely more specific biomarkers. Um, and then going along with biomarkers, there was also like a an abstract that I saw that was really interesting that was looking at the anti-pro-BNP levels in lupus um, because they were trying to predict, you know, like which one actually had cardiovascular damage. Um, and they found that at certain levels, like if the level is more than 133, it was strongly associated with underlying cardiovascular disease. So, you know, like we were always taught um, if you don't die from lupus early on, you die from cardiovascular disease. And when the patient presents to the ER with chest pain, I mean, everybody thinks it's myocarditis or pericarditis, but they have to think about MI. And so to have like these kind of biomarkers, I think that would be helpful. Um, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I actually had that on my list of, of the top lupus um, uh, posters as well. So I, I, I really liked that, you know, it, they had set cutoffs and, and you know, the interferon alpha of 0.6 increased the risk of, of two plus flares and, and um, 1.3 increased the risk of, of decreasing the GFR. So I think it's helpful that they're able to do these analyses and, and really say, um, you know, certainly, it, you know, it, it it increases with each unit of one, but but there's clear cutoffs that, that should sound alarms that patients are at higher risk um, um, with these different features. And, and I think we've we've had these traditional markers of, of severe lupus disease and lupus nephritis for a while that we've thought of, but, um, you know, kind of looking at the epidemiology and, and double shun DNA, but I think becoming more sophisticated and knowing which patients are at higher risk or, or need um, more aggressive treatment, you know, is important. Yeah. And then to distinguish also, because sometimes, um, like it or not, these patients have fibromyalgia and they say they hurt all over. And you're like, well, is this fibromyalgia or is this from lupus? So I really like the idea of more specific biomarkers that we could follow and actually have great um, sensitivity and specificity. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about cardiovascular disease, because I think that 
you know, kind of like what I was saying with the uh, anti-proBNP and cardiovascular risk, I think cardiovascular disease is something that's not screened for well with lupus because we think these women, they're they're younger. We don't think about the classic older male chest pain, pain going down his arm or whatever. But, you know, and, and I don't know if you saw this, but last year, um, ULAR made recommendations for cardiovascular disease management in lupus and other connective tissue diseases. And they had like the four pillars, which was increased cardiovascular risk awareness. You got to screen for it. You got to manage risk factors, and then you have to educate the patient. So you got the four pillars. Um, and I know like we have to do so much. We have to educate them about the disease. We have to educate them about their medications, talk about vaccination, reproductive health. And now on top of that, we're going to have to talk about cardiovascular disease. And, you know, we have always thought, well, is cardiovascular disease that prevalent? And so there were a couple of abstracts. Um, there's abstract 1442 and 1469 that looked at the prevalence. The first one is in a Danish lupus cohort. So it's a 20-year registry. They had over 3,000 lupus patients, and that were matched to 60,000 healthy patients or controls. And they found that the prevalence of MI in lupus was about 3% versus 1.4%. So it didn't seem like that high. Um, for cerebral vascular disease, it's 7% versus 2.7%, and peripheral vascular disease, 5% versus 1%. But even so, um, the, the fold increased risk in lupus patient, five-fold increased risk in cerebral vascular disease and peripheral vascular disease, and a three-fold increase in MI. Now, if you're a man with lupus, that increases a whole lot more, like eight-fold and six-fold. Um, and then there's the Lupus Manhattan Surveillance Program that's over 1,200 patients. So their cardiovascular risk is about 14%, and the risk does increase with age. It also increases with um, patients who are non-Hispanic Blacks and Hispanic patients. Um, so we have to also um, understand the socioeconomic determinants uh, that go into this. And so cardiovascular disease uh, is also an area that's dear to my heart. Ha, no pun intended. Um, I don't know. Do you guys screen for cardiovascular disease in your patients? Uh, yeah. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll first answer the question. Well, yeah, um, it's really, it, it reminds me of um, what my mentor would always say, that it takes a village to take care of a lupus patient because of what you just said about, you know, we have to, we, we, we just don't look into what active, um, what uh, active organ involvement is, um, is being, it's hap is happening in, within the patient, but you also um, make sure that or you screen for other problems like cardiovascular disease, your vaccinations and all that. Um, honestly, sometimes because, you know, especially if you have um, your lupus patient, which has been your patient for a long time, it's really hard sometimes when they would complain of, um, I think I have chest pains, but I also hurt all over. So, you know, you have to really um, be able to differentiate what that patient is having and, um, and you realize that, you know, every time a lupus patient comes in or, well, any rheumatic disease patient in particular, but especially for lupus because of their increased risk of cardiovascular disease, then you would always um, have to screen or monitor. Usually what, what I would do is I would, um, with monitoring, for example, for a lupus patient, um, 
at least every three months, you monitor your um, your lipid profiles. Um, you always check or always ask if there are symptoms of um, chest pain or um, any shortness of breath and, you know, a baseline uh, to the echo would also help. And then you then don't forget to ask about the family history. Um, so it's really, it's sometimes a bit of a burden as well, but, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't manage or if you don't address these problems, um, lupus patients won't, won't just die because of their nephritis, but maybe because of um, MI or um, a stroke. Right. And we tend to underestimate, you know, cardiovascular risk. The guideline says that if you use the Framingham score, you have to multiply it by two. I don't think a lot of people, one, calculate, you know, cardiovascular risk scores and two, I don't think they adjust for it. And it's interesting that you had mentioned getting a baseline echo because there were actually a couple of abstracts that look at echoes and assessing cardiovascular risk. And they found that the people with greater uh, left ventricular mass, those patients actually had higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And that's something that we could consider adding into our screening. Now, obviously the guidelines um, really don't clarify. They just said, oh, you should screen patients, but really don't give us an idea of how. What about you, Eric? How how do you screen your patients, or do you? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think these things do fall on our shoulders. I think it's also important. I, I talk to every patient when I meet them that it's really important that they have a good primary care doctor because rheumatologists do ultimately fall short. But I think we, when it comes to those pillars, I think we need to think about um, controlling all the controllables that that. If they're a smoker, we need to address that for their lupus and for their cardiovascular disease, you know, their weight, their lipids, their their blood pressure, their blood sugars, all these things, you know, uh, affect, you know, they're related to the medications we give, they're related to the lupus, and they're related to their cardiovascular risk separate and, you know, dependent and independent of their lupus. So um, it's important that we're thinking about these things. And I, I, I try to think about those things with them, but I also really want to make sure that they have a primary care doctor who's addressing it as well. And, and one that, um, you know, is working with me and understands that there's a higher risk, but it, it's a challenge to um, address all of that sometimes when they're coming in with swollen joints and, and these other issues. Um, I, I thought, you know, I always tell patients that the, the risk of cardiovascular disease is higher, which um, we certainly have lots of studies that you referenced that, that show that, there's another poster that I saw um, that also showed not only is the risk of a of a, um, a heart attack higher. They they looked at a million STEMIs and I forget which database this came from, um, but they compared the lupus patients to the non-lupus patients, and it showed that not only is the risk of having a heart attack higher if you have a, a an ST elevation MI. Your odd ratio of mortality is 1.3 compared to someone who does not have lupus. So, um, you know, you're more likely to have cardiovascular events, and the outcomes when you have it are, are worse in our patients. So, it's critical. Absolutely. Um, what are some other things that you found, um, Sheila? Okay. Um, so, since we've been talking about cardiovascular disease, so um, there. I saw a few um, studies on SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and uh, so we, 
it's uh, it's already a fact or the guidelines exist um, at least for patients with type 2 diabetes and um, those with established cardiovascular disease that inhibit the SGLT2 inhibitors um, reduce um, MACE, particularly non-fatal MI and non-fatal stroke or cardiovascular death among these patients. So, um, and clinical trials for SGLT2 inhibitors, unfortunately, have not included um, any lupus patients. So it's uh, it's interesting. There were a few abstracts on SGLT2 inhibitors, looking at its um, effect or it what um, outcomes it uh, it produces or um, it affect or how it affects uh, patients with lupus as well as those with lupus nephritis. For example. Um, Professor uh, Michelle Petrie in their abstract 1492, although the sample size was small, but they reported their early experience with SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so they found that um, prior, so these were SLE patients who were also given SGLT2 inhibitors for their um, diabetes. And so they found that um, prior to starting SGLT2 inhibitors in their cohort, the average annual change in GFR was a decline of 3.1. And after starting the medicine, the um, decline went to 0.9. Although there was an observable difference, but it was not really um, significant enough to um, uh, to see the effect. And um, there was also... um, the average annual change in proteinuria, as um, seen by the UPCR, was an estimated increase of um, 0.4 prior to starting the SGL2 in, um, inhibitors. And after and after starting the drug, the average annual change was estimated to decline um, to 0.37. Again, um, the differences were not that statistically significant. So from their cohort, um, there seems to be a marginal benefit of SGLT2 inhibition, but of course, with a small sample size and probably more investigations and not a longer follow-up, then uh, more conclusive um, data would be would show if there were any um, really any uh, advantage of giving or giving additional SGT2 inhibitors for lupus patients. And then similarly. Um, abstracts 1579, that's um, by the group of Dr. April George and 0590. Um, they also looked into SGLT2 inhibition using a um, target trial. <clears throat> sorry, emulation. <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> sorry. Um, target trial emulation network. So um, what they found were um, S- the use of SGLT2 inhibitors was associated with a lower risk of renal progression as well as lower risk of MACE um, compared with those patients on DPP-4 inhibitor use. Right. Um, do you know what percentage of your patients might be on those kind of medicines? Um, Eric, what, what do you think about those results and and would you put your patients on it if they had diabetes or an indication for it? Yeah, I think certainly if they have if they have diabetes or you know an indication from there, I think that's clear. And and there was um, you know a conversation we had when we did that the the daily topic panel on Room Now, 
is it because of the lupus nephritis that we're treating or, or is it because we're treating the, the diabetes? And obviously that's important for, for the kidneys as well. And I, I think it's important as we kind of extrapolate beyond and we think, is it, is it useful for our non-diabetic patients? Should we be using them? Um, but I, I think ultimately, re, you know, regardless of the one in our, in the diabetic lupus patients, I, I think we see that they're, that they work. And I, I'm very, um, struck by the, the evidence, especially when we compare them to some of the other, um, you know, hypoglycemic agents out there. Right, right. And I think that um, there's going to be more ongoing studies as more patients are getting onto these drugs. It would be really interesting to see, you know, once they get their uh, gluc glucose controlled and um, I mean, you just think that with a DPP-4, their glucose is better controlled, but yet it doesn't still have the same effects. But so it's a non-glycemic issue. It's It works in a different mechanism of action. So very interesting though. Um, social determinants of health. Okay, so I saw this one abstract. It's really cool. It's by Megan Close. Um, so from Duke University. And what she did was she just wanted to see you know, basically um, the patient's perspectives in a way and why they might not be adherent to therapy. Because, you know, we all have patients who they come in, you're like, you're taking your medicine, right? And they're like, sure. And then you realize, oh, they haven't even picked up the bottle from the you know pharmacy in three months or something. So what she did was, um, this is, uh, let me see what the abstract number is, 0190. Anyway, so she took a survey of 282 people and the median age is about 47. Um, they're, they were 90% female, 57% uh, black patients. And so what she did was compared uh, black patients to white patients. And they, she found that the black patients were more likely to be single, they're working full time, their annual household incomes under 50,000 and less likely to have private insurance. And so the most common reasons for non-adherence um, among black people compared to white people was I forgot or I was busy. Um, so that's about 69% of those folks. Um, and then about a third of them says I was too tired. And then a third said, I'm tired of taking medicine every day. And what's also interesting is that there's a greater instances in um, black patients where they're saying, because I'm feeling good, I don't need to take my medicine. So, um, and that's in comparison to, to white patients. And so I wonder like, you know, there's a lot of room for education here for, for everybody. Um, and one other thing that she also noted was white patients were more likely to miss a dose of their medicine if they felt too depressed and no one could help them. So that's also one other thing. And so these were all adjusted for demographics um, as well as other kind of variables. Uh, I, I just find it fascinating, particularly from a paper, patient perspective as to you know how they do and and what's going on in their lives. Um, and I just wish like more people would, would take the time and kind of figure out, you know, what is going on in your life? Why, why is your disease so active? Are you taking your medicine and just really ferret it out? Um, what do you think, Sheila, about this abstract? Okay, uh, it, um, yes, it really, well, actually, um, it's similar with our situation here in in our country where um you've mentioned um 
patients would simply stop taking their medicines because they feel well. And then after a few months, they'll go back to your clinic. And if you ask them, oh, it's because I forgot to take the medication or I just stopped it because I'm feeling better. But, you know, when you look into the root of the problem, um, education really plays a big hand in, in our patients with lupus. And not just with the patient, but also with the caregivers, with the family. That's why for, at least for um, for new patients, sometimes I would take a longer time to talk to them because first of all, if you say, okay, you have a diagnosis of lupus, the next would be the flow of tears from the patient. So it's really hard. And then um, it's it, you, you also have to talk to the caregivers, um, to their families, because, well, at least from my experience, when... Um, when patients receive um, news about them having lupus, it's like it's like already getting a diagnosis. Getting it's like getting diagnosed with cancer. It's 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 how that it's that bad. So um, yes, unfortunately, there you also add to the fibromyalgia to the depression, which can also be a different topic of discussion um, altogether. But um, Yes, um, there's really a large burden um, of disease. And I think um, just adding to that, Catherine, because um, I came across a an abstract. Um, I think, well, I'll, I'll take a look at the, I'll give the number later. But it um, looked into the reproductive history and HPV vaccination status of patients with, S with SLE and RA. And um, they're, they're the Findings show that there are still um, low rates of vaccination of um, HPV. And um, when asked, there was a questionnaire there. And when um, the patients were asked why they did not receive um, any shots of their HPV, the main reason was that um, they weren't really given um, the opportunity or it was really it wasn't really discussed with them by their doctor or by their rheumatologist. And we all know that, you know, vaccinations with HPV, cervical cancer screening, it really helps a lot. And with um, our SLE patients at risk, um, you know, it's really important that, again, we go back to the um, to all our um, lists of doing, okay, screen for vascular disease, um, do this, do that, <laughs> on top of all this, and then you have to edu really educate your patient. Um, I believe that if a patient is really educated about what they have, um, everything follows. They'll be compliant with their medications. Um, they'll, you know, they will be really aware and empowered um, about their disease, and it will come from them. I mean, it it really helps. I mean, um, we rheumatologists, we're here, we give options, but ultimately it's still the patient, you know, we, we need to help the patient because they will decide um, or it's it's up to them. And they, they are patients, they're not just, you know, numbers or they're not just any anything that, you know, we, we treat, but they're human beings. So it, it really does require a holistic approach in treating lupus patients. Well, yeah, Eric, go ahead. Yeah, I, I I think that was just an excellent way to sum that up. And I think we have all these new medicines that that we're talking about, all these all these new therapies. And you know, the the simplest thing we can do is make sure 
a patient is taking one or two pills of hydroxychloroquine a day, because um, we know that's that's the simplest, best intervention that we can do, along with you know all those other cardiovascular effects. And those are probably the best things that we can do, spending our time and addressing each of those barriers. I, I'm a big proponent of um, checking hydroxychloroquine blood levels. Um, I, I think it's a really useful tool. And um, I, I tell patients, um, sometimes I do it in the guise of toxicity. I say, I want to make sure you're getting the right amount, a safe amount. And, and um, But I think it's a good launching point for conversations. And I tell patients, that it seems a little bit lower this this month. You know, tell me um, what's what's been going on. Um, you know, you want to make sure these are, these are whole blood levels, um, to get kind of good data. But, um, when we get a good result, I, I, I think it's, it, it can launch into a conversation. Um, you know, it, it gets into why they may not be taking it. it. It gives me a chance to give them congratulations when they're telling me that things are, are, you know, that they're taking it better or if they're taking it better and their disease is still not under control. I, I have that data point. And so I, I think it's it's a huge issue in particular lupus patients that, um, you know, at least 40% of our patients are, are not taking the medicine the way we prescribe. And, and um, we can we can come up with all the advanced therapies in the world, but but it doesn't address it if, if there uh, if, if there are barriers that we're not addressing. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, do you all have any last words for our viewers? I'll start with you, Eric. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I could just kind of piggyback off of the other point that Sheila brought up about HPV and vaccination that um, I, I was um, I sounded by another another poster that showed that H, HPV um, rates of abnormal cytology and high risk strains were, were about uh, the same as HIV positive patients. And so. Um, I, I think, again, it comes back to a conversation of all the things that we want to be addressing. We can think about these these newest molecules, but thinking about, you know, vaccination, screening, um, cardiovascular health, all, all these modifiable risk factors, all these things we can be doing for screening. That's really the thing we can do to help lupus patients the most. Absolutely. What about you, Sheila? Any closing remarks? Okay. Um, so... Um, just going, um, getting from the background of we know that SLE is a systemic disease, and so it's not like um, if they if they have active um, nephritis, we'll just target or we'll just treat the nephritis. But it's really a holistic approach in terms of SLE management, and um, I'm looking forward to um, to hearing about more um, information or research on biomarkers. And uh, you know, non-invasive um, things that we could do to help our patients monitor treatment or you know new therapeutics. But again, just like what Eric said, if you have all this, if even if you have all the advanced um, treatment options or the tests available, but then you don't look at the patient, you don't treat your patient, you know, nothing will really work. So I think um, um, again, also. We rheumatologists, um, of course, we treat their, our lupus patients, but um, it's also a good thing if we ask help from other um, specialties, because again, it takes a village to treat a lupus patient. And, um, and yeah, I guess that's what I just wanted to say. 
Yeah, like it or not, you know, we are the primary care doctors for our lupus patients because they could be stubbing their toe. Their primary care doctor is going to send them to us and say it's lupus. Well, thank you all for joining me. I just want to remind our audience that tonight we have the daily recap at 8 p.m. Central Time. Um, There's also a psoriatic arthritis panel at 9.30 p.m. tonight, Central Time again. So I hope you all continue to follow our coverage. Thank you so much um, to both Sheila and Eric, and we will catch you all later. Bye.